you can't just ignore the emotions. You have to deal with them. I mean, to some extent, we have to set them aside. You know, if I'm in the courtroom and I'm presenting a case, I have to do the best I can to, to shut off my emotions so that I can give the jury the information they need. But then I have to go home and still deal with it. You know, I can't just say, okay, let's just move on. It's like, no, something happened here. You know, I dealt with a family who has lost somebody or I've dealt with a victim who's been traumatized for the rest of their life. But there are some that that just stay with you, you know, some victims that you remember, some defendants who did something so terrible that you just, it touches you. Years ago, back in child abuse, I had a four-year-old who I had to put on the stand where her grandfather had done something to her. And um, she and I, beforehand, we prepped and we talked, and she's the sweetest little thing. When I walked her in the courtroom, she was all happy and excited, ready to go. I had her, you know, excited. And then as soon as she saw him, she just shut down and wouldn't talk. I mean, still affects me to this day you remember gosh and that little girl she's gonna remember you know I hope she forgets but she's probably gonna remember and it seems like it's cocaine fuel then it's just him it's four pages of him talking about how great he is you know he says things like uh, people think I'm something between God Einstein and the Antichrist you know and then he's he's talking to her and you know says things like you know, you're the only thing standing between me and becoming what I am, which is a cold-blooded killer. Those kind of things stand out. I think I really gave a picture of his mindset. Like, this is how he viewed the world, that, you know, he was above everyone else. I mean, he literally says everyone else is human and there's nothing I can do about it. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community, and now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree, and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal and we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Welcome back, ATL listeners. I'm Joe King. Today, the Assisty Officer Foundation reaches out to the Dallas DA's office and has on one of their finest prosecutors. She graduated from SMU in 2005 and has been a district attorney since 2005 in Dallas. She has worked various cases from misdemeanors all the way up to homicide. She worked on a pretty big one in 2015, successfully prosecuting the neurosurgeon Dr. Death, Christopher Dunch. It is my great honor to have on our very first prosecutor, Michelle Sugart. Thank you for coming on. It's an honor to be sitting with you. You worked on some of my drug cases God, back in 2014. I don't know if you remember. I think we did some crappy arrests and you cleaned them up. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that, but thank you for having me. <laughs> yep. Also, I'm sitting here with three co-hosts, two or first-timers. We got the ever-present Randy Aguilar. He's here. Uh, Lee Lashley, fangirl. She's the wife of uh, former DPD Brian Lashley. Um, and we also have narcotics detective Argumento. Margie, please say your name uh, 
like you say it, because I can't say that. Escarcega argumedo. Yeah. See. Okay. <laughs> now you try again, Joe. <laughs> no. I'm, no, I'm good. <laughs> no. You you try. Can you say that? We'll get Michelle to say it. Okay. Michelle, uh, I'm going to dive into this. We're going to get in. We're gonna, it's not just about one particular case that you worked that we're going to finally get into, but I want the listener to know who you are. Okay. We're going to talk about your life. We're going to dig deep into your life story. I want you to pour it all out. I'm just kidding. Don't dig too deep. No, I'm kidding. My skeletons. <laughs> I, no, yeah, you don't want to see my skeletons. <laughs> all right, you you grew up in Garland, Texas. Describe home life. Um, I always had a really good family. You know, we were I was born in Garland and lived there for some time, and then we moved up to D.C. and um, down to Florida, and then I ended up back here in Dallas for law school. So kind of made a big triangle, but I think every place that I lived, I had really good experience and my family was always very supportive and great friends. I've just been really lucky that way. What year did you grow, grow up in Garland? What years? Um, 82 to maybe 89, 90 ish. It wasn't that big then, right? I don't think so. Okay, Cause I was, mm-hmm. I grew up in Dallas and Garland was kind of, it was Townie small was out there, right? At the time in that area, Garland Mesquite area. Yeah. And that's when the only time I would ever go out there coming from Dallas. It was like a big deal to go to Tony Small. Yeah, I think uh, 75 was one way. Yeah. That <laughs> one, thing. one lane each way back yeah, then. And that was like a 20-year project whenever that, that thing got built. Uh, you grew up in Garland. Why did you move? Where did you move to? Up to D.C.? Yeah. Why did you move up there? My parents worked for the government. And okay. so we headed up there when I was in about fourth grade and... I loved it there because that's kind of when you're learning history, you know, American history. Mm-hmm. And we got to the field trips. We're going to all the locations and um, seeing the battlefields and everything. So I thought that was really fantastic. So you've been to Smith- Smithsonian. Oh, yes. Yeah. I love the Smithsonian. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I'm a nerd like that. I'll, no, I, I, love, that. <laughs> I love history. No, I'm, I love it. Um, you went to you went from D.C. to Florida. What, what brought you to Florida? Uh, again, my parents' work took us down there, and that was when I was in high school. So again, perfect timing because all the kids in high school want to do is lay out at the beach, right? So, yeah, and you became a gator. <laughs> yes, then I became a gator, which was fantastic. Um, highly recommend it. <laughs> what was your major? Uh, finance. Okay. And when, then that was kind of, I decided I didn't want to do that, and so I went to law school. <laughs> okay, where'd you go to law school? Here at SMU. All right, and what is the name of that program? It's It's... Very renowned, but oh, the Deadman School of Law. Yeah. yeah, no, it's a no. That's nationwide known as a good as as a great law school. Yeah, it was a really good school. I had fantastic teachers there, and I got to participate in uh, the criminal defense clinic, which exposed me to prosecution and criminal law in general. And that's kind of what ultimately led to me being a prosecutor. What? Um, how difficult was that program? Because I've heard, I've heard, I've got some friends that went through it, but in in they had the civil and criminal, but how, how difficult was that to get through? Uh, I think the first year is difficult no matter where you're at. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody hates that first year of law school. It's really um, intense in reading and not knowing, you know, what your teachers are going to call on you for and um, just a lot of pressure. So the first year is difficult anywhere. Um, but I thought it was a great program. I learned a lot. Some classes you like better than others. Mm-hmm. Some classes are kind of boring and other ones really pique your interest. That being said, how, how impressed are you with that Haley Schlitz, the 19-year-old that just graduated uh, from there recently? How could you not be super impressed yeah. with her, right? That's amazing could to you be have done so that? young and brilliant. No. <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> I couldn't even drive a forklift at 19. I tried. 
yeah, that that's cool. I'm glad you brought that up, Randy. I was I was going to bring that up. That's nice. Yeah, she's super impressive. Yeah, she'll probably be the Dallas DA in 20 years. <laughs> Hopefully, she moves she's, on to something better than she's Dallas. She's going yeah. places for sure. For yeah, sure. well, maybe she might have peaked. I think she peaked. Mm. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, you passed the bar in 05. Where did you go to apply? Uh, you mean to work? Yeah. Oh, I only ever applied to the DA's office here and in they, Dallas and, and snatched um, you up. They they did. I was really lucky. I was um, interning for Dan Haygood and um, learned a lot with him. And he knew Bill Hill, the DA at oh, the I time yep. when I joined, and so. Uh, that's kind of how I got in. Bill met me on a case, and it was fantastic. He just hired me. Nice. Yeah, Bill. He he was the. I remember him. He was he actually was the lead DA on when Menchaca Mendiet got shot at over there, and uh, and it was kind of impressive. He actually went down and said it. He was down on that trial, and he ran it, mm-hmm. which was really impressive. I sat in on the opening and closing arguments, and it was packed full of of uh, of cops and. That was really cool to see him do that. Yeah, he's he is very impressive. Yeah, and long? he has a great memory too. He's one of those people who you know will remember your name twenty years later, even if he only met you once. You know, he just he's got that kind of memory. What was the culture back in in Dallas in the DA's office at that time under him? Um, I think back then it was. I mean, I think it was a good culture. It was very focused on you know getting getting the conviction and making sure that we're really. Take, putting criminals away um, mm-hmm. in prison, and um, you know that's kind of where I started out. What uh, what courts did you go to when you first got out there? Starting misdemeanor, I'm well, at, I imagine it's been a long time. Yeah. You're taking me way L- back. Let's just say, <laughs> let's just say misdemeanor. Yes, right, yes. We started you, misdemeanor. Everybody starts in misdemeanor, and you work your way up to felony. And I've been through about half of the felony courts, and then up into some of the divisions too. Yeah, and I would say that you asked about the cultures. It's it's certainly changed over the years, right? I mean, it's still about doing the right thing and and. Um, getting the criminals, that was Bill Hill's model was do the right thing, right? And I think that's always stuck with me. And then the culture over the years has, has modified some too. You know, well, we're all sometimes doing the right thing also means getting um, people help, whether that's mental health treatment or, or drug treatment or whatever it is. So things have changed, but ultimately I think we're still doing the right thing. Yeah. I, I work up in legal, so I'm the direct liaison with your office. And, and I've been up there since 2016, and there's been a huge change since when I got up there to. You know, when I got up there, I think Faith Johnson had already taken over from uh, D.A. Hawk. Um, and then now you have uh, Judge Cruzo. And a lot of it's changed. There's a lot more programs now that are available. And it was already starting to go that route with diversion programs um, when I was still out on the streets in, uh, in 16. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of explain to the listeners what what those programs are and, and, and why they're used? Yeah, I mean, over the years, they've developed a whole bunch of different diversion programs, and some of them are run by the DA's office, and some are run by the judges themselves, and they're meant to help very specific segments of the community who have a particular problem. So um, there's the court I just was in is Judge Collins, and she runs the veterans program, Um, and that is meant for defendants who, you know, have previous military history, and because of that have some mental health issues, and that that relates to the crimes that they are committing, and so she's trying to help them. And so they have programs like that for all sorts of people. Sometimes it's for prostitutes, um, and just sometimes it's for people who have other mental health issues, just different segments of society who, instead of just saying, giving up on them, really trying to fix the problems and see if we can address them to maybe stop, prevent them from doing more crime in the future. 
Yeah, well, the recidivism in our country, I mean, it's, it is, it's a revolving door. And I can't tell you how many times I arrested the same person and, and everybody, Randy and, uh, and Margie, the same person over and over and over. <laughs> yeah. And there's no rehab. And most of the users, I mean, the dealers are, they're, they're a different type uh, of person, but the users, most of them have mental problems and they mm-hmm. have addiction. Yeah, they're and using that's the, the drugs to, yeah. to deal with the mental health issues. Yeah, and a lot of them are homeless too. That that uh, you know get the, started off early in my career getting rock droppers, and and the majority of them were homeless. Yeah, is there any measurables to show how these programs are working? Are they? Have, do y'all keep track of that? Oh, there's a lot of groups to keep in track of that, and I think that it is. Um, I mean, I don't know the statistics because I don't really work in that, but I do think that there are definitely some progresses being made. Some people are getting help that I've seen just in the courts that I've been working in. We've been able to change some lives. Um, and I think that the statistics show that overall it does help to some extent. Can't save everybody, but oh you can, yeah, so you can help on some, and that you know makes a big difference, hopefully, for y'all out on the streets too. All right. What type of niche did you that – did you refine as a young DA? What did you gravitate to when you first got it? You start off in misdemeanors, and you, like you said, you had to work your way up to felonies. And it is a you when you start off, you start kind of at the bottom, right? Yeah, and it's just like any job. I mean, even we start off in patrol on the streets, and we're answering calls, and we try to build on that, and then officers find their own niche. Some like DW messing with DWS, some like messing with drugs, some like just working sex assaults. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and helping those victims. What did you gravitate to or figured out what this is what I want to kind of go towards? Um, you know, they just kind of put us in different divisions there. The, the bosses are the ones who move you around and try and get you experience in everything. And I think everywhere the various divisions I went, I just tried to find something that I really loved there so that I could really learn something and take it out of there. So um, 14 years ago, I was in the child abuse division. And I learned so much there. I always felt like that was where I really learned how to actually practice law because there's um, some real motions practice and learning to deal with the, you know, the children and how you can help them. Um, I thought that was great. I'm actually back in that division now. And, um, you know, when I was in the specialized crime unit, that's where I dealt with the doctor death case Mm -hmm. um, that we're going to talk about. And so just finding something anywhere you go, to me, gives me so much to draw upon when I'm handling cases, no matter where I'm at, you know, I was in the mental health unit for a little while and, you know, I wasn't excited when I was first sent there. And then I learned so much. I was like, Oh my gosh, there's so much I didn't know. And that helps me almost every single day now as I'm getting people who, um, who come in with all sorts of cases. And in fact, now that I'm in, I'm in the arson unit also. And as part of that, most of those cases, those people have mental health issues. And so my prior experience in that division helps me almost every day on those cases. So you start off like a foundation, you had several building blocks and then how different is the child abuse unit from 14 years ago till, till now? I think a lot has changed. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's still, very, I think it's still great and, and positive kind of um, atmosphere that we're trying to create for the children, you know, to take something bad that has happened to them and make it not such a terrible experience. Um, the way that we do things, a lot of that has changed. Um, I mean, it was, a, it was a good division back then, and I think it's a fantastic division now. Just there's a lot of resources that have been put into it, and the, the caseload for each prosecutor has been reduced so they can focus more on each case and give it the attention it really deserves. Yeah, they got that new DCAC building out there. That's mm-hmm. 
it's state of the art. They didn't. I don't think they probably had that whenever you were no. the first time. Yeah, they yeah. were still at the the house, the Victorian house, back on Swiss Avenue when I was there last. No, time, that's so. a nice. That's a that's nice a building. Nice building. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the new building's fantastic. Yes. We're actually going to get on. Um, he's been there seventeen years. Corey Foreman. He's going to mm-hmm. come on and, and okay. do an episode where uh, he's working on his bio for me. So he's great. He yeah. was he was on my cases back then years ago, and he's he's, he's on them today. So yeah. he knows everything. Well, that's such uh, that. That's a dep- that's a depressing, rewarding but depressing task, right? To to you're, you're, we go after people who who in a lot of cases can't defend themselves, and we're 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 we go after bad guys who who prey on people. But a, ch- a child, really, that is a that is a a victim that really is helpless. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think child abuse is one of those really hard divisions where all the cases kind of they hit you hard, you know? I mean, the first time I was in there, I was pretty new to prosecuting and I think probably pretty naive. And so all the cases were extremely difficult for me to handle. I didn't understand that there are people like this out in the world. And now, you know, I've seen quite a bit more and so that it's not quite the same, except now I have a child. And so they hit a little different, you know? I mean, I think no matter when you look at those cases, they're going to impact you because you've got somebody who is just a, a true victim they're being taken advantage of was that your hardest um division to work at yeah i definitely think it's the hardest division emotionally it takes Mm -hmm. such a toll on you i mean y'all know from being out on the streets there's just some types of cases that really take a toll on you and and they stick with you you know there there are people that um kids that haunt me from last time i was there that i still remember they just go home and hug your kids yes exactly you know even i have a case right now with a a kid is deceased and it's the same age as my child who's a year yeah. and a half, you know, and so I'm sitting there reading the offense report and I'm just crying. Tears are like streaming down my face and I'm I'm flipping through the offense reports and other prosecutors are walking by. Are you okay? Are you okay? Yep, yep, I'm good. Just getting through, you know, you just, you guys know, you just have to push through and do what you got to do to make it the right thing happen in these cases. I'm glad you brought that back up because you mentioned it a while ago and you said it. How do you manage the emotion? Because I know a lot of times people expect police officers to be robots and we're not we have feelings and emotions like you do you have any tips for any young lawyers anybody that might be listening how you manage those type of things or have you even thought about it or you just you know sometimes you can't just tamp it all in because eventually you're going to explode so do you have any releases or techniques or what do you use to try to manage yeah, stuff. I mean, you definitely can't keep it all in. I mean, to some extent, you're, you 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 kind of learn how to deal with it. But for me, I find that talking to my friends and family about the cases helps alleviate a lot of that pressure. You know, it's its own kind of therapy, just talking through it. If it's, you know, a case I'm trying to work through at work and, and there are other prosecutors there, then I'll talk with them about it, you know, and get their opinions. And then, you know, when I go home, I have a very supportive fiancé who used to be a prosecutor down in the Valley, and so he's helpful at helping me process these cases, and my family listens to them. And so, really, I just bring everyone in my life down to my level, but in that <laughs> yeah. way, it brings me back up. <laughs> well, like uh, cops, we have our dark sense of humor and how we manage that. And yeah, exactly. has to do with that, so... Yeah, bring him down to your misery and wallow, and then you're good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, what's your fiance's name? Jeff Henley. Uh Jeff. Shout out, Jeff. Hi, Jeff. <laughs> um, well, if I know you just got listen, sort of listened to our podcast, and um, we we do take a mental health approach to like the recovery, and also uh, for physically and mentally, right? 
uh, and we go in and we've had we've had a Navy SEAL on that was on the Bin Laden mission. We've had we hell we had one of the prosecutors or one of the detectives that handled Lee Harvey Oswald and Jack Ruby, and I'm sure they dealt with things much differently back in the '60s as far as as just being tough. And we come from a a a, a tough guy and, and gal profession where it, we want to just put on a put on that face and put on that shield and move forward right we have no emotions y'all have to kind of do the same thing mm-hmm. you you said you have people walking by your desk and you're sitting there bawling because <laughs> you know and you know it, it's cumulative though what you saw back when you were 14 years ago you didn't have a child now you do and it hits you a different way even though you have all these years of experience behind you i would imagine it's to, it, it hits you harder now with a child yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways it does, and it makes me very fearful, right? Everything oh, that we yeah. see in our jobs, I'm terrified constantly about, oh my gosh, this could happen, or and that could happen. You know, i just always watching for that, and um, you, you can't just ignore the emotions. You have to deal with them. I mean, to some extent, we have to set them aside. You know, if I'm in the courtroom and I'm presenting a case, I have to do the best I can to, to shut off my emotions so that I can give the jury the information they need, but then... I have to go home and still deal with it. You know, I can't just say, okay, let's just move on. It's like, no, something happened here. You know, I dealt with a family who has lost somebody or I've dealt with a victim who's been traumatized for the rest of their life and helping them process it and helping them through the um, the whole the whole court process and then taking it, you know, dealing with it myself, you know. Well, you want to give them justice too. Mm-hmm. And and there, I'm sure there's been cases where it didn't happen for whatever reason whatever juror uh, or whatever, how, how the case went, it didn't happen for that family, right? I'm sure there's been some not guilties there and that it, the case didn't work out. And I'm sure that's upsetting to you. And Yeah, I mean, it's always a disappointment if you don't get, you know, the, the verdict that you want or maybe the punishment that you were asking for, it's not as high. And so, right. um, you know, the family goes home upset or you hear them in the hall crying. I mean, that, that stuff happens down at the courthouse almost every week. But you're looked at to be kind of robotic too, and just yeah. eh, it comes with the it comes <laughs> with the uh, territory, and I'm gonna go home and you know and and just deal with it. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's the same. That's the same thing first responders have to deal with. Well, um, I know we're gonna get into one very unique and challenging case. Okay, uh, we're gonna dig into that. But have there been any other kind of you know cases dealing with kids or any really challenging cases that hit you hard? And really difficult to uh to Are you work trying through? to make me cry? I no, mean. no, no. I'm trying. <laughs> well, anyone that you want to want to talk about. And you don't have to be you can even generally talk about it. Um, you know, there's I've been there a long time, so mm-hmm. but there are some that, that just stay with you, you know, some victims that you remember, some, you know, defendants who did something so terrible that you just it touches you. You know, I had a Years ago, back in child abuse, I had a four-year-old who I had to put on the stand where her grandfather had done something to her. And um, she and I, beforehand, we prepped and we talked, and she's the sweetest little thing. And um, when I walked her in the courtroom, she was all happy and excited, ready to go. I had her, you know, excited. And then as soon as she saw him, she just shut down and wouldn't talk. You know, yeah. and that kind of thing, I mean, still affects me to this day, you remember Gosh, and that little girl, she's going to remember. You know, I hope she forgets, but she's probably going to remember. Of course. That I mean, day. it's, you know, basically just terrorize somebody that can't protect themselves and they have to live with that the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for what you do. 
I'll go ahead and get that out of the way. I mean, that's seriously. Oh, well, and, thank y'all. We couldn't, couldn't do it without y'all, right? We're all a big team. Yeah, we are. But, you know, there there is, I think that's re- what's really lost in, in the whole will of justice is, is the prosecutors. That's why I wanted, that's why this podcast, we, we've been talking about getting on uh, a prosecutor. And Elise Lindbergh, shout out Elise. She <laughs> recommended yes, you I come on. Oh, yeah. I've, I've worked with Elise since 2016. And, yeah, we're pretty we're pretty tight. But she recommended you and, and a few others, and I was like, "Oh, Doctor Death case, all right." So, and I, I, I remember, I remember reading about it uh, back then. Um, I want to go ahead and dive into that since okay. we're on the topic of challenging and unique cases and um, cases that at the time was unprecedented, right? Yeah. Yeah, when we, we, we tried to find other cases, we were like, please, somebody help us. Tell us how to do this. Give us a go-by. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we just we couldn't find anything where the doctor had been prosecuted for what they did in the surgery that was just part of their surgical technique. Yeah, it was, We're talking about Dr. Death, Christopher Dunch, and, and D Magazine is the one that gave him that nickname in an article back then, and it, it kind of stuck because there's been several other podcasts, uh, documentaries, I think. Peacock, Margie doesn't. Peacock have a show going. Oh, on. has a great show. Okay, I haven't. Wa- I don't have Peacock. I need to get I it just to watch it. I watched it in out. like two days. Really? <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. All right. Well, we're gonna get it. We're gonna. She, she's gonna. She's got some questions about that. But I'm gonna get into the origins of that case of how of how it got to you. Okay. It mm-hmm. was. I was reading it. There were some other doctors, basically Kirby, Henderson, and Lazar. They were actually campaigning openly to stop this guy right can you kind of explain how your office whenever you first heard about this case and how your office got involved um yeah i mean actually it came to our office two years before i ever even got involved when um when they were still trying to stop him and kind of his final surgeries were occurring and they were working on trying to take his medical license um, some of the doctors were coming up to the DA's office saying, hey, what this guy's been doing is criminal. Can you all investigate? And um, our office at the time, I think, wasn't equipped. Not not enough information was known, you know, that nobody knew how many patients there were. Nobody had looked at most of those patients, didn't know the damage that was done inside of them. They were still seeing doctors and gathering experts. And so really it took a couple of years where the um, the civil attorneys were doing a lot of investigating and hiring um, experts who could look at it and, and finding the patients and saying, you know, this is what happened to them. And then um, one of the patients came to our office a couple of years later and asked, hey, what about now? Like, are y'all, y'all going to do anything now? And so that's actually how it kind of came to our attention again. Um, some investigation had been done and we were able to pick up the ball from there. All right. How many, how many people did he, it was like 38, right, that suspected uh, he, it was 38 total patients that he operated on in Dallas, and he injured 33 of wow. those. That's not a very good ratio of, no. of success. <laughs> um, and some of the ones who weren't injured, like, we're still not 100% sure on. Like, either they just, he didn't do anything in them, like, right. didn't even do a procedure, or one of them was kind of a family friend of his, so we're not sure whether or not he told us everything. Like, I'm not sure all those people are okay, too, but... Sure, 33. Well, there's a lot of the some of the doctors that were repeatedly reaching out uh, to the police and also to your office. They actually had to go and do secondary surgeries to clean this clean this up, right? Yeah, clean oh, yeah. up his messes. 
But in the meantime that you guys were investigating or trying to gather evidence, he was still doing surgeries. No, oh, he no, was he was stopped okay. very okay. quickly. Yeah, okay. I mean, he he was stopped in 2013, which is when um, the initially they came to the DA's office, okay. and then some investigation was done by a variety of groups, and then um, it came back to us in 2015. That's when I got it. How was this case? It's kind of unheard of a case like this, right? How how did your office receive this when when they, when they got it that? Was it well received, or was it was it was the DA's office want to take an aggressive approach, or did, were y'all just trying to figure out what to do with it? <laughs> I think the last part, right? We yeah. were just trying to figure out what to do with it. Um, I I was looking at it because I just find medicine also very interesting, and so I was kind of investigating, and my supervisors were aware, and they're like, "Okay, Michelle, yeah, have fun." Um, and then once we really got into it, we were like, oh, I think we got, you know, like there's something here. This guy, he's a really bad guy. He's doing really bad things to people. And so uh, we kind of put it together in a presentation for the the supervisors at the office and for the actual DA at the time, Susan Hawk, and um, told them what we had and basically asked permission. Like, what do y'all think? Like, we think we have a criminal case here. Do you agree? Is this something our office wants to pursue? Because we weren't sure, given that we hadn't seen it done before in the community, how, you know, what would the public think about this? And, you know, we did. We were a little worried. We don't want the um, physicians out in the world thinking we're coming for them, because <laughs> that was not our goal either. So, um, what's well, a case by case thing? And this yeah. and this guy clearly had to be stopped somehow. And even his peers, the other doctors, recognize this. I I, li- I listened to some other. Uh, some other podcasts on this and there was a big one I think uh, had like an eight part wondery put out mm-hmm. uh, it was really good and they they kind of went into a lot of the, the cases uh, individually and the prosecution part I thought it kind of brought, it, it was very quick the part of that part. so I wanted I wanted to really dive into the nuts and bolts of that but after you started looking into this guy and you had aggravated assault charges and he also had injury to elderly you you kind of focused on that injury to elderly charge mm-hmm. why, why is that um well we kind of we focused on her case because it had the highest punishment range mm-hmm. um it was a first degree so it gave us the big range and also um by the time he got she was kind of in the middle of his patients you know yeah. there were a lot of really bad surgeries that happened after her but there were some bad ones that happened before so at that point we knew like okay you're on notice like you've already hurt these other people you've killed two people you've made one a quadriplegic your best friend a quadriplegic so you're on notice that you're hurting people and then he still goes in and hurts her and then her surgery alone the things that he did in it were just appalling things that no doctor would do and and the doctors you've been talking about that were coming to our office saying it was criminal dr henderson and kirby they um they were like these things should never happen in any surgery like this is not a medical procedure at all so you know that's why we really focused on her case okay some of the doctors that they came on and uh, they were actually used as expert witnesses right Mm -hmm. dr lazar it was (laughs) it'd be like if i came if i actually went in there and started trying to do a surgery a neuro you know, <laughs> yes. like if I started just, he was just like putting screws into flesh and, and, and muscle and not even in, not even to the bone. Or, yeah, right? Uh, right. Exactly. It's, it's very obvious. Dr. Henderson, he, when he did one of the revision surgeries, he recorded it because he said, nobody's going to believe me 
that this guy did this. And so he recorded it. It's on video. And we showed it to the jury. And you can clearly see on there what's muscle and what's bone and that he's not even close. Yeah. He was leaving like uh, instruments inside people, right? Like a bloody sponge. and mm-hmm. Yeah. He left a stuffed a sponge in someone's neck and left it there. And it caused this massive infection that almost killed him. Um, Tools. You know, yeah, I don't know if he left any tools in particular, yeah. but certainly he was doing things that should not be left in the body and in places where it definitely should not be. Did during I don't did he have any explanation for his did actions? He, did he have any explanation? Yeah, could, he, could he? How how you know normally if an officer screws up, I think they can say, "Well, I did." The, you know, some people try to justify it. Can justify it? Did he? even try to do any of this or you can't deny that a sponge is left in somebody did he have any explanation for how that could have happened or i think his explanation was denial like just complete denial he just acted like all of his surgeries were fine and anything that was wrong in them was not his fault i mean that's that's generally what we got from um his stuff from the civil cases where he was responding to questions and um, things that he wrote to the Texas Medical Board and the things he wrote in his operative reports. And then eventually, once the police arrested him, the things that he told Detective Anderson. Mm. Why do you think it takes so many mistakes for pe- from a doctor for people to actually pay attention? You know, you had all these doctors coming in and reporting him. And, you know, he was halfway through tons of surgeries and had many more after that. Like, what what is that? Is it the stigma? You're a medical doctor and you took an oath? <laughs> Um, Yeah, I mean, I think some of it is, you know, that he's the surgeon in the room, right? He's the captain of the ship. And so he has all the training. He's supposed to know what he's doing. And even though everybody else in the room kind of thought, "Ooh, this, this isn't how I've seen it before, you know, they didn't necessarily have the power to stop him. And there are a lot of checks and balances in the system. And um, I would say most of those failed in this case, you know, it's almost like I get this sense of there was a level of gaslighting there to everyone from this doctor saying, I'm the expert. So everybody starts to think, do I know what I'm doing as a professional also who's assisting in these surgeries or who's reviewing them and correcting them after the fact? Um, And I'm actually curious, um, you know, since all this has transpired, you know, has the medical boards out there, have they changed anything in regards to like suspending licenses or putting things on hold while investigations are taking place? And, you know, what what has happened since then? Um, Regarding the medical board specifically, I'm not, I don't know. You know, they don't have to tell us any um, changes that they've made or anything. I haven't heard of anything. Maybe they have made some internally. I'm just not sure. I know that um, some of the doctors that were on this case were are advocating for change all over the place, you know, whether it's in the medical community, at the hospitals themselves, um, or with the medical board. I mean, just trying to make sure something like this doesn't ha- slip through again. Well, he, he started off like at Medical City, right? And then, was it Medical City? No, he actually started at Baylor Plano. Uh, Baylor Plano. Yeah, and then he he went went to Dallas Medical Center. Dallas Medical City, and then he ended up like in Southampton. I I mean, (laughs) that's, no, you know. That's part of the red flags, right? He goes from Baylor, which is like tier one, and then he goes kind of to tier two, and then he ends up at like the worst hospital, which is now defunct now, right? I mean, they're, they're completely shut down and bankrupt, so. But there was no write-ups. It was like they just let him go, and he just went from one hospital to the next and to the next. Yeah. I mean, there's a variety of ways he was able to do it, but, you know, he was hiring lawyers to um, help get him from one place to the other. And 
He just it, moved quickly. And they were going after him civilly initially, right? That's what, mm-hmm. And there was no criminal charges. They basically were just taking, um, they just take it, looking at it from a civil standpoint. Right, yeah. And, and all those investigators. Like medical malpractice stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then all those investigators, actually, they were doing a lot of, what, you saw all the evidence and everything. Were, were they aggressively looking into it, in your opinion, or what? How'd that go? Like, like which entity? How much, how, the, the civil side. How much did they have already in, uh, laid out for you before you got it? Um, well, the civil lawyers had done a lot. Mm-hmm. They'd really, they'd hired experts. They'd worked through their cases. Um, and so they, they had already, their experts were very helpful to me. Um, but I, I will say we did our own investigation, you know, like the, the civil lawyers, I met with them, I talked to them, they let me have access to their files so I could see, um, some things about, you know, who, which doctors do I need to subpoena and talk to? And they gave me some ideas of some things that they'd found kind of in his background or with some of the other, um, entities that he, um, had business with. And so it gave me places to look. But then we took all of that and did our own complete individual investigation to, to make sure that everything was correct. And and we had a different focus, right? They're focused on, um, they have a different standard, yeah. which is lower in civil than we do. Preponderance and, of evidence, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And obviously we have beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. So we had to um, look at it from an entirely different perspective. But also in Texas, sir, there's two, there is a cap to what people can, can sue for, too, right, for... Uh, for malpractice like this. Right, yeah. And, w- and was that in effect at this time? Was yes. It, okay. Oh, yeah. The the okay. caps were in effect, and, you know, um, that certainly put some limitations on the general public and, you know, how willing lawyers are to sue doctors. And, you know, there's a variety of reasons, whether you like them, good or bad, to have those laws yeah. in place. There are ways to get past them. Um, you, you can reach beyond and get above those caps, but it's extremely difficult. Why do you believe he was allowed to resign from places instead of just being fired? And, and, and I mean, and, and of course, this is all just opinion. <laughs> if you if you can't if you can't answer, I don't, don't worry about it. Um, you know, I think it depends on which hospital you're talking about. Um, early on, maybe the hospitals didn't know. He was still new, and they didn't know how bad he was. They just knew yeah. he's not going to practice here anymore. Right. Um, and then come some of the later hospitals maybe were afraid of being sued. I think everyone has a different reason for why they um, let him go and didn't report him. Um, but I would venture to guess that m- they're not reasons that most of the public would um, like because they wouldn't want those doctors operating, doctor yeah, operating. Course. They want him operating on them. So. Would put a black cloud over the whole hospital. Right. Yeah. And, um, I want to discuss the Mary Eford case. Uh, prior to the death of Floella Brown, uh, he suggested drilling a hole in her head to relieve pressure. And while operating on Eford, he severed one of the nerve roots uh, during spinal fusion surgery, and also operated on the wrong, uh, like a wrong disc in her neck. Is that correct? You, um, on, on Eford. On. Some of that was Floella. Oh, that's Floella. Floella Brown, yeah. Like Floella is the one that um, he operated kind of at the wrong level, and then he got in too deep, and he caused massive bleeding, Mm -hmm. which ultimately caused a stroke, which is why he wanted to drill a hole in her head, yeah. To relieve the pressure. To relieve the pressure. Mm -hmm. He he was also, he screwed, twisted screws into nerves. 
Yeah, um, that's Mary. That's yeah, Mary. So a lot of people put those together, uh-huh. right? And you're rightfully doing so mm-hmm. because they were back to back. And so like Falola is dying and, and having a stroke in her brain and he wants to drill a hole in her head. And at the same time, he's already operating on Mary and putting screws in her nerves and in the wrong place. And He actually, I, ha- I have a little audio clip of, uh, of Detective Anderson, uh, Chris Anderson. Uh, he was a, the DPD detective that worked on this case. He gave me a clip of the the interview and Dunch actually blames the distraction of <laughs> Floella while he's operating on on Mary mm-hmm. and and he, he I'll play it here in a minute but I want I want to get more into the Efrit case can you go into a little bit more about what you remember um, on on her injuries um yeah on Mary he cut off one of her nerve roots which causes her to have a dropped foot, like the the nerve that controls your foot. He just completely cut it off, and it doesn't come back. You can't get it back. Um, nothing you can do about that. And then he put a screw through another nerve, um, which caused her intense pain and damaged that nerve, obviously. Um, and then he put you know some spinal hardware into her back, except he didn't put it in the spine where it belongs, right? Um, he put it into the muscle <laughs> to the side of the spine. Yeah. And so Dr. Henderson had described it like trying to – um, you know, put a screw into raw tuna. Like it's just not going to have wow. any purchase. It's not going to do anything. It's not going to support anything. She's there. Um, so he, yeah, he just went in there and created a big mess and left it and then said, no, she's fine. You said, was was hers recorded? Is that the one that recorded? Yeah, that's uh, the one they recorded. <laughs> were the people around, the, the assistant, the nurse, what was their reaction? I mean, they're just... Everyone was a lot of cutting eyes appalled. each other. Oh shit! What's going oh, on? It was far beyond that. I mean, everybody was appalled what was going on. Every single person I talked to was in that surgery room was telling him, "You were doing this wrong. It is in the wrong place. You're hurting her." And he just kept saying, "Nope, it's fine. I'm the doctor. I know exactly what I'm doing. You guys don't know what you're talking about. Um, you're doing your job wrong." And so everybody was telling him it was wrong, and he was just ignoring them. You know, I. I have my opinion that he's just a textbook narcissist, but when he's, and we're going to get into an email that surfaced that actually uh, did not help his case. That uh, was the razor, the, uh, Oh, Occam's razor. O- Occam's razor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a very interesting email that y'all, y'all ran across. Um, with, and we hear all the time about some, some doctors and, and they have like a God, God complex. And did he, I don't understand how somebody like him that has all these different patients coming up with similar injuries before this one, and he's just writing off as everybody else is wrong, and he was doing it right. And Detective Anderson was telling me that when he was interviewing him, he like had no grasp. He was just kind of like, no, these people are 70% better mm-hmm. than when I found them, <laughs> but they're paralyzed, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. and they had a drop foot. <laughs> yes, exactly. Damn. Yeah. Um, like I said, complete denial, right? Complete denial that the patients were still hurting. Okay. So can you walk me through the process of once you did the investigation and you decided to, to issue warrant, go before the grand jury, how difficult was that to put all that together and how nervous were you? <laughs> to go before the grand jury? Can you talk to you, walk us through that? Yeah, sure. I mean, it wasn't that difficult. To put together because I, we'd been doing the investigation for so long, and so it was just conveying that information to them in a manner that was understandable, right? And this is the same issue that I had throughout the entire case. And 
we'd already presented it to the DA. And so I used the same presentation (laughs) to the grand jury and it took a couple of hours. Um, I was definitely nervous because to me, it felt like this was an important case. And um, I just wasn't sure what other people were going to do with it. What is the public going to do with something like this? So um, I was definitely nervous, but the grand jury was complete. They were great listeners. They listened to it all. It took a couple of hours. And um, at the end, they decided to indict him. Were were a lot of questions? There were, there were a lot of questions Mm -hmm. and there was a Mostly a lot of shock and disbelief. They were very appalled about what they were seeing because I was showing them pictures and explaining how spine surgery should go and what was happening. And um, they kind of just couldn't believe it, um, the things that he had done. And um, It's not like you're going to Karen now. You're going to Baylor. You're going to (laughs) medical city. Yeah, you're going to the big good ones. Southampton. (laughs) And, you know, I mean, he's a neurosurgeon. He's got all these years of training. Um, Yeah. No, there's some no. <laughs> yeah years of training, and um, so you went before the grand jury and you got in grand in grand juries it, they're they're done in secret, but it's it's not there's no expert. I doubt there were probably many medical experts in that grand jury that when you're having to explain very deep medical terms to people, how much did you have to learn to? to speak on this. I mean, I, I would sound like an idiot in there trying to explain this. Uh, and Anderson uh, told me that when he went in to interview him, he says, I can't go in there and talk about C3, C, C4 <laughs> disc. I mean, you know, I, he, he, he goes, this guy is way smarter than I am. So how am I going to go in there and ask questions that are intelligent enough where I can get him to talk? Cause right. he could say anything. He can say anything to me. Yeah. You just see, right. we just, change the C1 and C7 out and we're good. <laughs> yeah, All you'd right. never know. You're like, All okay, right. you're a doctor. Yeah, you went to a doc- you went to, you know, you're a doctor. Do- doctor school? Yeah, you went to, yeah, you went yeah, you went to doctor school and got your doctor degree. I went to a shortened doctor school. <laughs> no, the, how much seriously the, how, how much did you actually ha- did you have to sit and get into the nuts and bolts of of the process to explain to them how it went and what yeah. went wrong? Yeah. That's I mean, fascinating. you kind of have to, right? I mean, I had to I had great people helping me, but teaching me basic spinal surgery, what it should look like and where things should go and what the the parts of the body are and what kind of hardware they use. And then, you know, we had to teach the grand jurors that, and then we had to teach the regular jurors that, I mean, you just have to teach everybody so that they can understand what went wrong. And it's a little bit complicated, but, um, you know, you just kind of have to put it at a level that the general public can understand. Right. I mean, that's where I'm at. I'm not a doctor, so um, you didn't get an honorary was, doctorate. For, no, I for did that? not. Oh. No, no. Not yet. Maybe yeah. I should request that, though. Yeah, you should. <laughs> you, know, you know, I'll write you. We'll print one out here before you leave and give it to you. Keep, I'll sign you, it. For yeah, you. yeah, yeah. Margie will sign it, and Randy will witness. Margie, yeah. <laughs> what you you think you could perform surgery now? Like, I mean, yeah. as good as him. Really? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the standard here? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Mm, touche be like me we'll, we'll have like a, we'll have like a like a surgery off and see who right. we'll, Mar- we'll work on Margie and no, Randy we'll work and, on you you've yeah, lived the yeah. longest <laughs> you know rip, wow thanks I, no Randy's lived the longest I'll hey. practice on all of you wow. by the time oh I get God. to the last one I'll be close to getting a good I'll, I'll wait for the last one <laughs> alright so you got the true bill w- what went through your mind when you found out that this is happening. We're moving forward. We're getting warrants on this guy. Well, I, I was very excited. I mean, it was kind of actually, it was a big day. I'd been working with Detective Anderson um, 
on the case and he'd been helping me with a whole lot of different things and then on that day we we made it a special day to get it to the grand jury and to seal it so that the general public wouldn't know what was um going to be presented to the grand jury that day because we were afraid that he was a flight risk he was briefly in town visiting his children and so we were trying to get it all done quickly and he was in colorado before yeah, yeah he lived in colorado at the time with his parents and but he would come back and visit his children here and so we knew he was in town, and so we we presented it to the grand jury and asked them to report to make a decision that day. Most of the time, it takes a couple of days before it reports out, and we asked them to do it right away. Um, so after I presented, I stepped out. They voted. Um, they decided to indict him, and then the warrants were issued right away. And I'm calling Detective Anderson on the phone, like, "Hey, go get him!" <laughs> you know, and he already had set it up on his end, like they were expecting it. They were ready, so they had a group ready to go out and and get this guy. They knew exactly where he was. And that's a great example of of DPD and the DA's office working like literally hand in hand, right? Because our uh, our fast team, you know, uh, Frederick Fraser, he's on that. He was on that team, and actually there, I believe, whenever they they captured him. You remember where they where they found him at with a hotel? I don't remember which hotel it was. Actually, it was up off seventy five. I think it was by Richardson. I can't mm-hmm. remember uh, the Hyatt. It was. He yeah, was up I think there. it was the Hyatt. The Hyatt. Yeah. Okay. Um, so they they bring him in, and there was no issues with the arrest. He didn't resist. Yeah. No, he came in. Uh, I'm he was gonna, always very cooperative. Yeah. yeah. Well, so I never he, thought he did anything wrong. Right. Exactly. Yeah. He was so like, he never I'm, lawyered up or anything. Mm-mm. No, he he was like, I didn't do anything wrong. So I'll, I'll help you guys out. I'll talk to you. Okay. Wow. Well, Detective Anderson, he he uh, he was talking to me about it, and he said, "Yeah, the guy was just kind of, he just didn't seem he didn't understand what all the hubbub was about. It was just kind of like mm-hmm. what the hell are we bitching about? It did fine. The guy's better. <laughs> She's better. You know, uh, he he just he said he was just listening to him, and he just could not understand. He just he just didn't understand why he was being attacked by these people for his great work." Right, yeah. I mean, he he definitely, you know, he did what he always does, which is he blames other people. He was, you know, blaming the civil lawyers for trying to make this happen. Um, And he was in complete denial that any of these patients were hurt. He said, oh, no, they're 90% better. And he's talking when he said that, he was talking about a person who literally can't feel half of his body because of what he did um, and ever will. Um, But I thought Detective Anderson did a really good job just – getting him to talk and being open with them and you know hey man like I just we just want your side of the story and and that was true we just can you explain to us what happened here sir yeah I'm gonna play a little short uh, uh audio clip of of the interview and, and there's like a, it's it, it's regarding uh Mary's case okay Let's see if you remember this <laughs> I feel like it was because I got overwhelmed by 
coming into my operating room, freaking out about the patient who was dying, not following my orders about this patient, me trying to get this patient closed. Um, if I had slowed down and followed my neurosurgical training, I would have been able to finish my effort, and that, that, that complication would not happen. Was there an yeah, so it, it sounds like he still just, it was somebody else's fault, right? Right, He, yeah. he interrupted his incredible work and his kick-ass <laughs> uh, surgery skills. and then, But Floella Brown, is that the one that they came in and interrupted him on? Uh, no, they interrupted him on Mary because Floella was dying. Okay, no, no, Mary, yeah, yeah Mary, he was working on Mary, but Floella right. was the one that was dying. Right, and she did die. Was he working on both of them at the same time, or? He'd done Floella the, night bef- the day before, Okay, and he'd royally screwed it up, and so she was dying, and then he decided to go into Mary's surgery, which he never should have done, right? And then in Mary's surgery, well, if you have somebody open on the table, you should be focused on them. Yeah. And let someone else take care of your other patient and which is what the hospital is trying to get him to do like let us get her the help she needs and he just wouldn't do that and so you know i mean you can hear in that that recording he's just justifying everything and blaming blaming other people and um sounds most of his recording he's just relatively unemotional about it all and he doesn't seem to understand how what a big deal it is that he's being talked to by a police detective <laughs> about these charges. He's very open. I mean, he yeah, yeah he uh, he didn't lawyer up. He 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 uh, he was Mar- read his Miranda and he he signed it and he was like fully cooperating, mm-hmm. even with I, the search I, of his hotel. Yeah, I will say though that you know part of the the reason he was able to work himself amongst all these patients and all these hospitals is because he's very. Um, charismatic and he sounds good when he's talking he's very good at talking his way in and out of things and and convincing people of what he believes in his head or what he wants them to believe and so I think that his interview also demonstrates that as he thinks throughout the entire interview that he can convince Detective Anderson that he didn't do anything wrong and if he just says it enough times and then yeah this will just go away well that's because he had years of sitting there telling patients no no you're better you're better. No, it would have been this bad. You think you have that one drop foot? You'd have three drop feet <laughs> if if I didn't work on you. You know, and, and he's and it just Anderson told me that <laughs> he was sitting back in his chair and just listening to him, thinking, "God, this guy's full of shit." Yes. You know, and just we couldn't believe how bewildered uh, uh, Christopher was acting. Yeah, and just kind of. Not didn't seem to be living in the the same reality that the rest of us were. You know, like we all knew who he had hurt and who he'd killed and, and, and what he had done. And he knew, but he didn't know or just wouldn't admit it was his fault. We didn't take, it wasn't, he didn't no accountability. Right. right? Yeah. And, and, th- and th- that was a true throughout the entire trial. He, um, he, he denied everything, which, you know, you would expect from somebody who's on trial. But at the end, after our last witness, Dr. Lazar testified, um, he, I didn't hear this, but his de- we were told that he turned to his lawyer and was like, oh, maybe I did something wrong here. You know, it took the entire trial and then Dr. Lazar, who was amazing and fantastic. Yeah. We're going to get into him, yeah, yeah his testimony. That, to convince Dunch, oh, okay, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't be operating maybe on I people. Maybe I do suck. Yeah. <laughs> but it's still a maybe. He's still not right, saying right. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, still a maybe. <laughs> maybe I'm shitty. I don't know. Maybe. Um, when he got arrested, did he make bail? No. Okay, did, and how many charges were initially? That, 
he arrested for that day? Uh, six charges. And his bail, um, his bond was set at 600000 So 100000 on each case, and he wasn't able to make that. Okay. Um, I've actually listened. I've heard some of his of his jail calls with his father, and and, and it, it was similar to what we've already heard with Anderson, you know, him talking to uh, Detective Anderson. Really just kind of shocked and just bewildered that this is even happening and didn't understand it, and it's i don't know even to his father it it was uh he he was taking that same approach what was your biggest challenge in leading up to the trial and picking that jury like what what was what did you see as the biggest hurdle for the for the trial yes um i mean to me my biggest worry was is the jury going to convict a doctor right like are they going to think that a surgery gone wrong is criminal. So in my head, that's that was my biggest hurdle. I mean, obviously, it was an extremely complex case, and we had more witnesses than I'd have ever seen put on in a trial before. Um, and so coordinating all of that and getting it ready and preparing, I mean, that took a lot of work, and I had a fantastic team that was helping me with it and, and taking a big part of the burden with me. Um, but definitely the entire time I was just worried, is the jury going to? convicted doctor do they think that this is criminal or not speaking of the jury how, how difficult was picking that jury um you know we were worried that there had been a lot of press around this and so we were worried well maybe they've seen it and they formed an opinion and then we knew it was going to take a lot of weeks to uh, try the case and so we were, had to find jurors who had a lot of time right who can take off three weeks from work without it being a problem and that's what we were looking at so um, those were kind of our big hurdles and then the finding the jury actually we ended up with a fantastic jury we took took us about three days to pick the jury which dire. Is, yeah a yeah. dire, which is kind of abnormal to do three days yeah that's, that's a long can you explain to the listener what dire is yeah, Vordire. <laughs> Wadir throughout the rest of the United yeah, States, yeah. but Vordire here in yeah, Texas. Yeah, Vordire. Vordire. <laughs> uh, basically just talking to the jury and explaining the law to them and finding out whether they can follow the law and um, trying to get an inkling of, will they be a good juror on this case? Is this the kind of, you know, what kind of thoughts do they already have forming in their back, you know, from their background and um, you're trying to understand them and they're trying to understand you. So it's your really your only time to have a bit of a conversation with the jury. I know you, you talked about this earlier, uh, not wanting to any of the doctors thinking you're coming after them, but after this case, there's really thought about going to the legislature and getting more specific statutes that can make this probably a little bit easier to prosecute than having to do the work that you did on this. Is there ever been any consideration for that? I don't think from our office. Okay. That's not really something that we were looking to focus on. I mean, it was an extremely um, difficult and resource-intensive case, and we couldn't have done it without the other experts having looked at it, I mean, and giving us all their time for free. So it's not really something that I think we're trying to change criminally. We were able to, you know, if it's a crime, it's a crime and fit it under that. Um, but I do think that there some people have tried to – um, make it a little bit easier civilly to go after you know doctors or certainly to stop them so that things like this don't continue try and make changes that way absolutely yeah you think some of the, i mean some of the peers actually would be the ones pressing you know for legislative change right yeah and that's exactly who's doing it actually Good. Well, some of the doctors should, from this, a lot it of makes, people, yeah it's like it's like when it's like when cop bad cops and and, and cops that get in trouble we despise that because we feel it 
right? Mm-hmm. We get, you know, somebody, uh, you know, killing somebody, uh, you know, states away, DPD feels it, yeah. right? It makes you it, look bad. It makes People us don't all trust look bad. You. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, you got your jury picked. Uh, can you describe the, the flow of the case? And how, how long did this trial go? Uh, three weeks. Three me. weeks. <laughs> that's a long trip. You know, here we try them quick. You know, normally it's like three or four days. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, I've been Good on a lot of, 15 days. I've been on, a, on a, a lot of cases that pick a jury on a Monday and then right when we're getting ready to go on the stand on the Tuesday, they, they plead just mm-hmm. to kind of oh, yeah. waste a little bit more time for right. everybody. <laughs> so how, how'd the case start? And just how, can you tell, talk about that? Yeah. Um, so once we decided that we wanted to present it in kind of an orderly fashion, lay it out for the jury in that what did he know before he got to Mary's case? Because she's our, our focus, right? Like we were trying to prove that by the time he got to Mary, he knew he was going to hurt her. And then he did hurt her. And so we we put on the patients that happened right before her in a row where, you know, he'd injured them and he knew it. Um, and then he killed two patients and then, you know, he made his best friend a quadriplegic. And so these are things that he actually knew all of these patients in a row that he had just done this damage. And here, let me go jump in and operate on another one. And then he caused the damage within her case. So we kind of, we tried to lay it out in a very um, orderly fashion of by the time he got there, he knew. He was gonna. He was absolutely gonna hurt her. There was no chance he wasn't going to. And then they found him guilty. So thank goodness. No, that sounds like a great game plan, though. To kind of, and, and that's what you finished with Mary. Yeah, we we um, we put Mary on first. She was our very first witness, and I think that was very dramatic. Yeah. Um, some of it was we wanted to put a face to it. Like, there's a reason that you are here, jury, and this is your reason. And she wheeled herself in, and she obviously couldn't get on the stand, so she testified from her wheelchair kind of next to the stand and just was very um, impactful and emotional about, you know, what had happened to her and what she was still suffering from the things that he had done. And then we went back in time and talked about all the other things he knew leading up to her case and then when we got back to her case that's when we called all the doctors to explain what had happened to her and all the people who had been in her surgery and seen everything going wrong um you know just to kind of put her on first to give it a face and then lay it all out what was his reaction whenever uh like mary was uh testifying don do you do, i know he's probably sitting on, out of view but do you did you by chance get a look at him of his reaction when she was speaking yeah i mean every time we looked over at him he didn't really have any reaction he was very stoic throughout the entire trial um there was no reaction really to anybody's testimony whether it was the patients testifying some of the doctors maybe he'd get a little bit excitable if he disagreed with what they were saying but generally he just sat there yeah we've all been in trials uh you know margie and randy and i we and and you can really you see a lot of head shaking, eye rolling, yeah. uh, whispering to the uh, the, the yeah. attorney, yeah, and or writing something down or drawing stick figures or whatever they're doing over there doodling. Yeah, it was kind of interesting in the hearings that we'd had before the trial got started. He was very excitable, like all over the place in his attorney's ear, constantly talking to him, writing just tons and tons of things down. And then during the trial, there was none of that. It was very, you know, he would write some. Um, he would talk to his attorneys, I think, if he, you know, of course, if he needed to, but they clearly had talked to him and been like, this is not going to look good in front of a jury if you're behaving this way. You have to cal- calm down. And so he was, he was not doing anything. Do you know if he ever showed any remorse? 
oh, I never saw any remorse. No, no, um, not in, you know, and we listened to all of his jail calls and I never heard anything in there that he was remorseful. And of course, when he talked to Detective Anderson, he was not remorseful. I, n- none of his concern that I could tell was for his patients. It was for himself. Can you describe the impact of Dr. Lazar's testimony and of how just impactful that was for the case? Yeah, I mean, he was he was our... I would say the big expert, right? We had all of these other doctors who'd operated and seen the patients individually. And so we brought them in to explain what happened to the patient. Um, And, you know, there were some bigger ones like Dr. Henderson doing that. He'd seen a few of the patients. But then Dr. Lazar was very much our, I've seen most of his work. Um, So he went back and some was for the civil attorneys. And then we gave him a few extra patients that he reviewed for us for free because he knew how bad this guy was. And he... Um, looked at it all and identified everything that was done wrong in each one of those surgeries and was able to lay it out for the jury and they loved him. You know, he's a real nice guy and he put it into terms that they could understand and he got down and talked to them and he brought models to, you know, show them and explain, you know, what the surgery should look like. And, you know, he really wrapped it up all nicely in a beautiful bow that nobody could argue with anything he was saying. Well, it sounds like it even changed Christopher's opinion of himself. <laughs> yes. Damn. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? Wow. It, it took until that, right? And Lazar, Dr. Yeah. Lazar was our very last witness um, during the main case. And so, you know, all the other patients and doctors had testified, and, and Chris didn't bother him at all. And then Lazar gets up there, and he's like, oh. Yeah, Donch okay. wrote, I'm screwed on his notepad before, <laughs> after that. Um, can you tell the listener who Kimberly Morgan is and why her testimony was so compelling? Um, so Kimberly was his physician's assistant when during his time at Baylor. She was just with him in those um, early surgeries, and they also had kind of um, an intimate relationship yeah. at the same time. So she knew him on a very personal level. Um, and, you know, she became important because, one, she had seen some of the surgeries and what was going on in them, but really more because of their dynamics between the two of them um there were a lot of emails that we had gotten yeah and he had written her this one email that you you talked about earlier called occam's razor and we felt like that was some more evidence that we wanted to give the jury and we had to have her to do that can you explain that that email the best you you know (laughs) can anybody explain that yeah (laughs) i know but what was the gist of it though what the takeaway on that email um you know it's this it's this rant at I don't know two or three in the morning a.m. and it seems like it's cocaine fueled and it's just him it's four pages of him talking about how great he is and that he's you know going to build this empire and you know he says things like uh, people think I'm something between God Einstein and the Antichrist you know and then he's he's talking to her and he's not very nice in how he talks to her you know he's um, obviously abusive at least verbally and emotionally towards her and you know says things like you know you're the only thing standing between me and becoming what I want to be which is a co- what I am which is a cold-blooded killer you know so yeah. those kind of things stand out you know that's he what he's that calling email. Yeah. that's yeah that's what he's calling himself this is how he's talking about it. and this I think I really gave a picture of his mindset like this is how he viewed the world that you know he was above everyone else I mean he literally says everyone else is human and there's nothing I can do about it you know I mean he's just talking about how fantastic he is and so it gives you a lot of insight into his mind and where he was. And it was right before he was going, he began these surgeries where things started going downhill. 
Yeah. So imagine after, a yeah. patient that <laughs> yeah. you know that you know because you as a patient he's trying to sell you this this idea that you're going to be so much better. I'm here to help you. I'm here. I'm, I care for you. And then to read that email and you're like. Oh my God! That's a completely different right. person. Dar- Darth Vader operated on me. Yeah, he's. Uh. Yeah, like if I hadn't read that email before, I never would have let you touch me. Exactly. You know? Yeah, I wouldn't imagine I'd be on his promo for his website. That that Occam's right. Razor. Yeah, to get to get customers in there. When would the jur- How was their reaction whenever they Lazar's testimony and also the Kimberly Morgan? She had to get like it was like a was it Zoom that. Her, her testimony? Uh, yeah, we Skyped her in. Skype, okay. Yeah. She was on active duty for yeah. the military, so mm-hmm. she was over in the Middle East, and um, I think it was like midnight there or something when she was testifying, but she came in full uniform, and she looked good, and I thought I thought she handled herself really well. I know it's a really hard thing for her to do, you know, bringing up bad memories, and yeah. um, she herself had ended up getting sued for, you know, pulled into his big yeah. mess, and um, yeah, she got up there and did it, so... She just told, you know, what their, a little bit about what their relationship was, but admitted that this was an email he'd written to her and and that's what we needed. And then the jury, you know, they, I think that they'd heard so much about him by then that maybe it had some impact, but I don't know that it had that much. When we talked to them afterwards, they were like, yeah, it was interesting, but it didn't really affect our thoughts on it. Yeah. Looking at the, just the gross you know, malpractice that went on. Yeah. Yeah. That was enough, but that was just kind of a icing there that. Occam's razor. Do you think he ever actually wanted to help people? Yeah. I mean, so? I think in his head he did. I but think he just didn't know how to do it. <laughs> he was making right, it worse. Yeah, yeah, he couldn't make it happen. Um, but well, I think that he wanted to. Was he ever successful in any surgeries or did he just, what did he start off bad or did he have a good, what was his track record before all this? Did y'all, how far back did y'all um, go? Did I mean, we did all, we looked at all of his surgeries in Dallas. And there were just a few that seemed to be okay, and some of those were because he didn't he didn't do anything in the patient, so, he's bad. so he didn't so help. So he was them. bad from the start. Yeah, okay. I mean there were maybe there was maybe like one or two patients that he helped. Um, I wouldn't, but yeah, I don't. I wouldn't say he ever had a a good time period while he was here in Dallas. Were there any patients that backed him after this whole thing came out that said you know he was great? There's- there were there were some patients who. Right after their surgery, they felt okay. Mm-hmm. And so he paid for this like promotional video and he got them to come in and, and do part of their video. And then later, as time passed and things, they realized things were going bad in them and other doctors looked at them, um, they were like, oh man, he totally had us fooled. You know, like their oh. back started breaking down later um, like with like with Marshall Muse, you know, and mm-hmm. who we'll talk about in a minute. And you know, so even those patients who initially came out, like they felt like they were okay, and then it just got worse. So, yeah. <laughs> Can you go ahead and talk about him? Marshall, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, again, another one of those patients where he he gets in there, he puts hardware in there, and, you know, Marshall didn't know it at the time, but he left that hardware loose. He didn't screw it down. He didn't put it in the right place. And so initially... Marshall feels okay coming out of it. And then when he starts doing things like going to the gym and working out and he's he's lifting weights, he can feel the hardware moving in his back at the time. Lug nut fell and like out. Underneath, underneath the skin, he can feel it. And so, of course, at that yeah. point, he realizes something has gone terribly wrong and he goes in and, um, you know, that's how he ended up being one of the people that we put on at trial. Um, was, he, was somebody able to clean that up and fix him? 
Yeah, I think mostly. Okay. I think he's he's mostly doing better now. Okay. Um, um, how long did it take the jury to come back with a, a guilty? Four hours okay. for the main case, yeah. And, and for the listener, what is that quick or for, in a case like this it's, for a three-week trial? I think it's pretty – I thought it was – pretty average well they want they want to be thorough yeah they want to be thorough they want to consider everything i mean um i was not expecting them to come back in you know 10 minutes or 30 minutes like sometimes happens but it seems like they definitely looked at the evidence and considered everything but also that they really didn't have any doubt they they were not back there i don't think they were back there fighting about it or arguing you know it wasn't like 12 angry men that movie right (laughs) yeah i mean if you have jurors who are saying not guilty and guilty getting them to come together that usually takes you know 12 hours or a day or something not just four hours well because every juror there was probably thinking, "Damn, this could be me. This could have been me." Right. With you know, wow. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure some of them had back problems just from sitting through my trial. So. No, I've got a back <laughs> problem. It's the last person I'd want to go to. Um, how long was the sentence? He got a life sentence. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So in the main case, we put on just six patients, but then we called another, I think, ten, just to talk about what had happened to them and. We, I mean, we argued that he had given them a life sentence. You know, he'd killed some, and the ones who were alive were going to be in pain for the rest of their lives. Of course. So that's what they gave him, and I think he deserved is it. Is he done with the appeal process, or is he still appealing to you, or what's the uh, status on that? It's done now. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah, the conviction of him has been called precedent-setting case. So has, after since this case, has, been, has there been similar cases that have come out, uh, that come up like this? Um, afterwards, I had quite a few calls from mm-hmm. other offices, um, police agencies and DA's offices. You know, they had their own doctors. People were calling in saying, hey, these terrible things have happened. Um, we're looking into it. How do we go about it? So I think that people are considering it now, you know, looking into it. Yeah. I've, I've not heard about many where um, there definitely have been prosecutions. I think there's been a few. Maybe there's, building up to yeah, it if I they mean, can. Yeah. yeah, and if you look if you look at that, you'll see that there's plenty of other there's other physicians that are doing terrible things, and it's not all you know related to surgery. It's other things that that happen around that person's life. Um, but even to this day, I still get patients reaching out to me wanting me to investigate their doctors, and so I definitely think that there is a need for something maybe kind of like this to a limited extent. It's just an extremely difficult case. Well, there are several out there. I mean, it's like it's like cops or, or, or anybody that does something wrong. There, There's the minority of, of doctors that are out there that are this awful, right? right. And, and they just, they just, they're, they're getting treated the same way. They're like a gypsy doctor going from hospital to hospital and, maybe having some successful surgeries, but some also very half-ass and just, you know, destroying people's bodies. Yeah. I mean, just a few of bad apples make everyone look bad. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's like, like we do with um, law enforcement. Yeah. But as, you want to stop them. No, <laughs> right. Yes, please. As far as the, uh, cause you say you saw the show, right? Yes. So how accurate was the show compared to everything that you found and evidence and 
you know, the the characters and all. I mean, I thought the show was really interesting because we actually worked quite a bit with them to give them background so mm-hmm. that they knew a lot of the events that had gone on um, with the patients and, you know, things. They got the little details like um, that he had a hole in his scrubs, <laughs> you know, and everybody yeah. knew he was wearing the same scrubs over and over like again. three because days. There's yeah. a hole in the scrubs in the That's butt flag. and he didn't yeah. wear underwear, you know, like, so they got, they a, got a lot of details <laughs> like that. I really felt like they nailed the personalities of the people too. You know, they reached out. They, whoever was playing that character would talk to the person. So, like, I talked to Anna Sophia Robb, and she wanted to get to know who I was and, you know, how I look at cases and prosecute them. And she was really trying to get my personality down. Um, and I felt like with each one of the characters, I was like, oh, yeah, he totally is like that, or he does it. So they did a really good job. have to watch it again. Pay attention to <laughs> no, you No, I'm going to watch it. I don't have Peacock, but I'm going to watch it. Oh, it's it. so good. you got to watch no, it. No, I'm going to watch it. I am. I'm going to. I'm going to get Peacock on the trial and then blow through it and then, and then cancel it. Um, the Dallas DA's office said they called it a historic case with respect to prosecuting a doctor who had done wrong during surgery. Who was the DA at the time? That when It was Faith Johnson whenever this was uh, when we completed. Tried it. yeah. Okay. What What was the feeling after y'all had this pro- – had, you had this guilty verdict in, the, in that office? It was just – it's a big case. Yeah, it was a big case. I think everyone was really proud. I mean, a good chunk of the office had come and watched parts of the trial, you know, trying to learn and understand. And it was just, of course, very interesting and fascinating. And, um, of course, there's some relief, right? Oh, it's done. We've <laughs> we finished it. And we, it. Um, we, we were able to get it done. Yeah, uh, yeah. definitely that. But... Uh, I think the office overall was very proud. It had been a huge team effort. You know, there were five prosecutors on it and then investigators helping me and really the entire specialized crime division chipped in at some point throughout the investigation or throughout the um, the trial. And I think everybody just felt like, oh, man, we made this happen. You know, something big and new and unique. Well, I would imagine that you moving forward in your, your life and career, you're probably going to be contacted by other uh, DA's office of on how you did it to model it after this right there's always a case out there that sets precedent and lays the ground you know lays the road for the others to follow right right yeah huh that's gonna be interesting I can't I'm actually surprised that you haven't there hasn't been any others there's been some who've kind of called yeah they called but 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 actually they've done anything or not followed through because most of the most of these type cases they start as civil Right, mm-hmm. people yeah, just want damn. I want money, you know, to get money as opposed to going after them from a cr- criminal standpoint. That's what made this so unique. Maybe it brings us a little comfort, though. Maybe there's not that many of them out there. Hopefully, that's a great way to think of it. Yeah, I mean, he that he's like an extreme example of a bad example, right? You, right. You'd yes. hope. I hope so. And it's like some of the it's like some of the stuff we see officers or firemen doing or, or military uh personnel doing we we really believe that is the very small small minority in our community and when you got people like dr lazar and kirby and henderson coming out and getting this guy out of their profession that's what you need right. and really trying to do the right thing and you know that's so often you know doctors they don't talk bad about other doctors right because they realize oh that could be me or i don't want people talking you know what so they don't do that and so these guys really had to stand up against their own peers even and be like no like this guy has to be stopped right i thought that was very brave so that case wrapped up what did you do after it how how did that case you slept no you slept (laughs) 
like Rip Van Winkle. You just yes. okay. Just you just woke up for this podcast. You're back. <laughs> so where did you go after that? Um. Well, I was still in specialized, mm-hmm. so I finished up some cases there, and then I went down to the mental health division for a while and learned a bunch, and then um, I've been up in the felony courts for a while, just trying our normal cases. You know, the same kind of stuff you all see every single day: murders and burglaries and drugs and um, those kind of cases. And now I'm back in child abuse. Okay. So with all that you've done, you started child abuse, and now you're currently back in child abuse, and. You have a fiance. Mm-hmm. You have child. What is next for Michelle Sugar? Oh, it's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I love my job. Mm-hmm. You know, I I really do. Part of me is like, oh man, I'm I'm getting old. I've been here a long time, right? But I love it every single day. It's so much fun, and I'm excited to be there. And I really do feel like we make a difference out there, and we're able to help some people, and we're able to put away the people who. Um, need to go away and so I just love that and so I think as long as I'm you know still having good feelings about it in my heart and feeling like I'm doing the right thing then I'm going to keep doing it that's a big relief because you know I don't think anybody wants to lose good DA uh, prosecutors because we don't need you going to the other side <laughs> yes well thank you <laughs> there's been a lot that went went to the other side and, there have been you know, <laughs> they're doing a, a good job too they're doing a great job <laughs> shout out Danielle <laughs> yes so um well, I want to thank you for your service, and I hope Dallas can keep you. You've been here since 2005, so that's that's a pretty long time for uh, a DA to stay. Yeah, in you one calling city. me old? No, I'm not no, calling I'm you sorry. old. I'm calling me old. <laughs> no, you're not old. <laughs> I, I, Dallas is lucky to have you, and that DA's office is lucky to have you. No matter, you know, you, you you've seen how many DAs in your time there? I think I'm on my fifth. Fifth, yeah. Well. They have a treasure with you, and we just want to thank you for coming out here and spending time with us, and look forward to having you on again. Thank you. I really appreciate you all, and the fact that you're doing this, right? This is an amazing um, podcast that you are doing, really reaching out. Thank you. Hey, brother, hey, sister, I'll never give up on you. Mrs. A. Mister, I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far the sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you.
sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs. Hey, Mister, I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far for the gold and the blue, I'll never give up on you.